The life of Percy Harrison Fawcett was never short of adventure. An amateur explorer who obtained a gold medal for his services to the Royal Geographical Society in a time long before planes, GPS and radio communication. He was a man with a story and a character so much larger than life that popular fiction has drawn influence on him for years. From Martha Conan Doyle's The Lost World to the Hollywood archaeology of Indiana Jones, even making an appearance in Tintin and the Broken Ear as a blowpipe-wielding hermit. For over 20 years, his career saw him delve deep into the Amazon until, in 1925, just months before newspapers printed their headlines that the city of Atlantis had been found, he set off into the forest in search of a lost city that he had christened simply Zed. This is Dark Histories where the facts are worse than fiction. Hello and welcome to Dark History Season 5, Episode 10. I'm Ben. Can you believe we're on Episode 10 already? This year seems to be absolutely flying and we're cracking on to halfway through the fifth season already. Surely that must mean that summer is somewhere. Uh, Certainly not here yet. But (laughs) anyway, we're going to crack straight onto this episode because don't have a lot of things to talk about in terms of news. And I think this one's another long one. So let's just get on with it. This is Percy Fawcett and the Lost City of Zed. After the resolution of the Napoleonic Wars in 1815, a new effort in exploration swept across the globe. In the centuries prior, seafaring expeditions embarked from across Europe to map the world, expand global trade and form imperialist colonies. By the 19th century, the major routes were well-travelled and the continents charted. The knowledge of the interior of many of these places, however, was still severely lacking. Governments, natural history entrepreneurs and scientists all pressed hard into a new effort to remove the vast shroud of mystery that covered large swathes of their maps, plagued with blank spaces and the simple markings of the unknown. Governments throughout the world sponsored expeditions in the hunt for minerals, resources, lost passages and colonial border expansion. At the same time, the boom in scientific community found interest in exploration to further knowledge in the realms of geography, archaeology and the newly established field of anthropology. As the 19th century ploughed forward to the Victorian era, the Industrial Revolution brought wealth to the middle and upper classes who had invested in its expansive march and many chose to spend their new fortunes on travel. Alongside the day tripper and pleasure cruiser who took advantage of the blossoming luxury travel industry, a new breed of adventurers found excitement in the unknown, turning their hands to amateur exploration and cartography. These amateur adventurers were facilitated by institutions such as the Royal Geographical Society, which was founded in 1830 with the express interest of mapping the world using new, accurate instruments. Its membership quickly grew to more than 500 individuals, including Charles Darwin, David Livingston and Robert Falcon Scott. Acclaimed geologists, natural philosophers, astronomers and cartographers were joined by dukes, elves and a fair share of good, old-fashioned eccentrics who gathered in the halls and lecture rooms of its Savile Row building, sandwiched between Soho and Mayfair, to debate over boundary lines and who it was that should take credit for certain discoveries. In many ways, its location was a metaphor for its membership. On one side, were the rough and tumble of the explorers and field workers who ventured into the unknown, oftentimes precisely to remove themselves from a society that they struggled to gel with. 
whilst on the other, the scientists and academics who stayed in the comfort of their own homes pieced together data from the adventurers' experiences in order to theorise on the lofty philosophy of exactly where the line lay that separated civilization from savagery. Two of the least explored regions of the world in the 19th century were South America and the Arctic. As it turned out, both held a high interest to governments due to their promise of economic and political wealth to those that could master the elements and uncover the unknown. In the Arctic, Britain specifically sought passage to the Pacific through a northwest route that would not only be of economic advantage, but help them to firmly cement their naval supremacy. Likewise, the rainforests of South America held untold riches in the form of minerals and rubber, an industry that wrought crimes and abuses towards the indigenous populations on a devastating scale as frontier-minded businessmen tore through the jungle in search of the black gold that was, for a long time, exclusive to the area. For many explorers, however, the thrill came not from the economic rewards of such endeavours, but from the drive to explore uncharted territory. It came from the scientific advancements that piqued their personal curiosity, and no doubt, it came from the fame that awaited those who redefined the maps as the world knew them. In 1901, Percy Harrison Fawcett joined the ranks of these explorers after he grasped the opportunity for a radical career change. It was the start of a love affair with South America that would see him map regions of the continent that no one had ever set foot in before and it would prove to be, like it was for so many before him, his ultimate downfall. Percy Harrison Fawcett was born on the 18th of August 1867 in the far southwestern seaside town of Torquay in England. His father, Edward Boyd Fawcett, had enjoyed a privileged upbringing, having been born to colonial parents in India, schooled in private schools in England, and then, upon graduation, played cricket professionally for Sussex and England. In his spare time, he hobnobbed with the likes of the Prince of Wales, and he eventually married Myra Elizabeth MacDougall, the only daughter of another moneyed family. The couple settled in Devon and they started their own family, with the birth of their eldest son, Edward, in 1866, followed by Percy a year later and three daughters. With access to two family fortunes, Edward made sure to utilise as much of the money as possible, delving headfirst into alcoholism and gambling. By the time Percy was sent away to school in Newton Abbott Proprietary College, where he excelled in sports, playing cricket, rugby and was a keen boxer, he was already accustomed to the tensions in his family and felt an acute distance from his parents. His father eventually drank himself to the brink of death, with tuberculosis finishing him off in 1884, just as Percy was preparing to graduate. His mother, whom he later described as hateful and devoid of parental affection, packed him up and sent him off to the Royal Military Academy on the grounds that she liked the uniforms. Despite this less than convincing entry into military life, Percy settled into the role well, moving to Salon after his academy graduation where he was commissioned as Lieutenant with the Royal Artillery. In Salon, Fawcett was stationed at Fort Frederick, a former Portuguese defensive structure built from the debris of an ancient Hindu temple. In the earliest years of his time in Ceylon, he met Nina Agnes Patterson whilst attending a gala on behalf of the visit of the Austrian Archduke Franz Ferdinand. He found an instant connection with Nina, with both being drawn to explorers' tales and the religion of Buddhism 
a path thought to be considerably esoteric and spiritually adventurous at the time, and even somewhat scandalous for a British officer to be involved in. The pair formed a tight bond, and they engaged to be married. However, Fawcett's mother condemned the marriage and wrote to Percy to tell him that his wife was not the innocent young virgin that she presented herself as. Thought to be deceived, Percy called off the marriage and Nina returned to Britain heartbroken, eventually marrying another man, though it was a tragically short union as he died only five months later. Whilst in Salon, Fawcett grew to hate army life, but along with Nina, he also found another love in the form of archaeology. A colonial administrator had been handed a mysterious map with a trail that had marched off into the interior of Salon. Having no use for the map and knowing that Fawcett was interested in such things, he gave the map to him later and told him that the trail supposedly led to a cave filled with gold and raw gemstones that had once belonged to an old king. As Fawcett took the map, his eyes lit up. The administrator warned him that the cave was apparently surrounded by leopards. Undeterred by that nugget of information, he set off into the interior during a month of leave, hitching a boat ride to Batacaloa on the eastern shore of Salon, and on the back of a bullock cart lumbering 100 miles inland. The treasure hunt eventually failed to turn up any lost fortunes, but it sparked a sense of adventure in Fawcett that he would never truly shake. Back in Fort Frederick, Fawcett learned of his mother's deception concerning Nina, and so, already aware that she was now widowed, he travelled back to England to take a gunnery course, and whilst there, he begged for forgiveness in the hopes that he could rekindle their old relationship. Nina agreed, and the pair were finally married in January 1901. Back in England, and with a bug for adventure, Fawcett decided on a change in career that would go on to shape the rest of his life. Casting aside an army life which he so loathed, in 1900, he began his study towards a diploma at the Royal Geographical Society. It was a course that would prepare the would-be explorer for the unknown and launch them into a career of adventure. In a world before GPS smart devices that you strapped to your wrist, successfully navigating the wilderness was a complicated, multidisciplinary affair. Pupils of the society learned how to use the various instruments needed to calculate latitude and longitude altitude and elevation. They learned basic first aid of the survivalist kind, treatment from poisons, snake bites and arrow wounds. They studied botany, meteorology, geology and anthropology, as well as leadership skills. And above all, they learned how to record and classify every sight and every sound, from the density of a sun-hazed canopy to the hue of steel that coloured distant mountains. Fawcett graduated in 1901 with great credit, and he immediately took his first commission. Employed by the secret intelligence service of the British government, he travelled to Morocco as a spy under the disguise of an innocent cartographer. Whilst there, he employed the skill set that he'd learned at the Royal Geographical Society, which held a remarkable degree of crossover with those needed for an undercover reconnaissance mission, and infiltrated the Sultan's quarters sending back his reports to the UK detailing that the Sultan was young and weak in character. Over the following years, he skipped across the globe. For a time he stayed in Malta, then Hong Kong, and finally back to Ceylon, where Nina gave birth to Jack, their first child. In 1904, the couple returned to Europe, taking up a station in County Cork, Ireland, before once more the call of the wilds took hold. 
by 1906, Fawcett was back aboard a ship bound for South America where he was to help the Brazilian and Bolivian government establish firm borders through the dense rainforest area of Monte Grasso. The commission had come in the aftermath of war in the midst of a violent frontier industry of rubber farming that existed in an area of Brazil, Peru and Bolivia where no borders were firmly established. The Royal Geographical Society had been tasked with sending someone in to map the borders between the two countries as an impartial third party. When the president suggested the job to force it, he showed him a map full of empty space and struck through with the scars of rivers which were nothing but guesswork. It may be difficult, the president told him, and even dangerous. Not much is known about this part of Bolivia, except that the savages there have a pretty bad reputation. One hears the most appalling tales of this rubber country. Then, of course, there's the risk of disease. The expedition was contracted to take two years. In his notes, Fawcett wrote simply, Naturally, I accepted the offer. By May of 1906, he was aboard a ship bound for New York with his 30-year-old assistant, Arthur John Chivers, an engineer. After sailing from New York to Panama, they took a ship to Peru and then a train over the Andes, a boat across Lake Titicaca, and finally a rattling train ride to La Paz, the capital city of Bolivia. On the journey, Fawcett studied Spanish grammar and tried his best to avoid the quarrels between the rowdy occupants, hell-bent on gambling away all their money before they arrived at their destinations. The journey had been gruelling, but served, as he put it, to knock off much of our English reserve. Throughout the journey, Fawcett was also introduced to the South American phenomena of the treasure tale. You cannot be in Peru or Bolivia a day without hearing talk of treasures, he said, as people all had a story to tell of digging up lost treasure buried in the ground or concealed in some hole in a wall somewhere by a panicked Spanish colonial who had later abandoned it as he fled from danger. In La Paz, the expedition was held up as they waited for funding to come through, which left them idle for a month. The city itself was modern, and being the wet season, the streets were frequently covered in snow. In the daytime, they thronged with foreigners in top hats and Indians in westernised clothing. Brothels dotted the market areas, stalked by mining prospectors, freshly returned or devising a plan for their profitable expeditions. Altitude sickness took its toll on many newcomers, but for Fawcett, who neither smoked nor drank, the threat was, he said, greatly diminished. When the politics were finally straightened out and the money was eventually released for his commission, he purchased food stores and mules and set out with Chivers in July of 1906. From the snow of La Paz, they descended into the forested valley below, crossing rope bridges that were so high and so rickety that at times the mules had to be blindfolded in order to goad them to cross. At every turn, we came upon some breathtaking view. Never had I seen mountains like these, and I was crushed by the grandeur, speechless with the overpowering wonder of it. As we dropped lower, the vegetation increased. The bunch grass of the summits gave way to fields of vetch and a cactus-like moss. A few stunted trees made their appearance, short and twisted, like witches suddenly transformed by some magician's art while engaged in an unholy sabbath. Then we were in the midst of organ cactus, its dismal grey candles springing up from the slightest crevices in the rocks. From the snow of the Andes into the subtropical rainforest, 
they dived from one challenging environment directly into another. They built rafts from trees, enlisted the help of several locals and started their long 600-mile journey downriver, negotiating rapids, whirlpools and waterfalls. As they hopped from one outpost to another, encountering all manner of characters, from drunk Indians to American and British rubber and gold prospectors, riddled with exotic diseases like malaria, beriberi and espundia, a parasitic disease picked up from insects that causes ulcers to form around the nose and mouth and eventually eats away at the flesh. They sailed on deep into rubber country. Here Fawcett viewed with his own eyes the devastation that had been caused by the industry. Rubber barons were in the midst of carrying out practical genocide on the population of the forest, kidnapping Indians and committing them to slavery and killing any that stood in their way of profit. No government inspector who valued his skin would venture into the rubber country and send back an honest report. The arm of vengeance was long, and in Montana life was held very cheap. The violence carried out by the rubber companies made travel difficult for any foreigner, who was now eyed with little more than contempt by many local indigenous populations. Slaving raids on the savages were a common practice. The prevailing idea that a barbaro was nothing better than a wild animal accounted for many of the atrocities perpetrated on them by degenerates, who were the straw bosses of the Baracas. I met the Gorayo Indians later and found them intelligent, clean and infinitely superior to the drink-sodden civilised Indian of the rivers. True, they were hostile and vengeful, but look at the provocation. My experience is that few of these savages are naturally bad unless contact with the savages from the outside world has made them so. With every new meeting, Fawcett was forced to press that it was not a rubber baron and eventually, mile by mile, he pushed through the hostile country. When it wasn't the Indians causing fear, it was the jaguars and venomous snakes. Food was another unforeseen trouble and hunting game had proved difficult, though monkeys were always on the table. Their meat tastes rather pleasant, but at first the idea revolted me because when stretched over a fire to burn off the hair, they looked so horribly human. The newcomer has to become hardened to these things and leave his fastidiousness behind him, or else starve. The group floated down the rivers when they could, and when conditions were against them, they trekked on foot for up to 12 hours per day. At one point, whilst on the river near the Rio Negro, Fawcett shot an anaconda that swam past his boat that he estimated at 62 feet long, though current estimates in maximal size suggest that they grow to only a third of that and given that the anaconda is one of the most over-exaggerated animals in existence in terms of size one might believe that Fawcett was a tad overexcited when writing his diary that night. Shortly after they met with the Carapuna tribe who shot volleys of arrows towards their boats causing the group to paddle away as fast as they could headlong into the approaching rapids that they used to carry them away. In October of 1907, Fawcett found himself back in La Paz, handing over his maps and reports to the Bolivian government officials. Having handed in the work ahead of time, he now found the officials perfectly accommodating and they offered him more work if he was interested. For the time being, however, it seemed that he had seen all that he needed to stave off his hunger for exploration. Ahead of me was the glorious prospect of home. For the present, I was satiated with the wild, and my mind was full of the coming journey to the coast, of the lazy sea voyage, 
and the sight of England with its funny little trees, neat fields and fairy tale villages. Of my wife, the four-year-old Jack and the latest arrival, Brian. I wanted to forget atrocities, to put slavery, murder and horrible disease behind me and to look again at respectable old ladies whose ideas of vice ended with the indiscretions of so-and-so's housemaid. I wanted to listen to the everyday chit-chat of the village parson, discuss the uncertainties of the weather with the yokels and pick up the daily paper on my breakfast plate. I wanted, in short, to just be ordinary, to dig in the garden, to tuck up the kids after a bedtime story, to settle down by the fire with my wife beside me, busy at her mending. Those were the things I yearned for most. It would be agreeable to me to return and carry out another boundary survey, but if my own government refused to grant an extension of my services, well, perhaps it wouldn't be so bad after all. Also, he thought, Fawcett passed Christmas at home with his family, but very soon after, he began to feel the urge to return to South America. Sitting idle at home began to drive him in circles, and he became quickly agitated. Deep down inside of me, a tiny voice was calling. At first, scarcely audible, it persisted until I could no longer ignore it. It was the voice of the wild places, and I knew that it was now part of me forever. I knew I loved that hell. Its fiendish grasp had captured me, and I wanted to see it again. By March of 1908, he was once more back aboard a ship, steaming across the Atlantic, bound for Buenos Aires. On this trip, Fawcett was tasked with mapping the Rio Verde River and trace it to its source. Armed with the experience of his last trip, this time he came better equipped for the task and bought his own instruments from England, as well as abundant stores and a case of champagne for entertainment purposes. He ventured out from Corumba in the Mato Grosso region of Brazil, situated on the Paraguay River, trekking 400 miles northwest with a crew consisting of his assistant, Frank Fisher, and seven recruits. They sailed in boats past the Ricardo Franco Hills, an area that Fawcett later went on to describe for Arthur Conan Doyle, who was seeking ideas for a novel set in South America that would eventually culminate in his 1912 publication of The Lost World. As they continued on their journey, however, passage grew tougher and tougher, and within nine days, the group were entirely out of food. It was the start of what would quickly turn into a nightmare as Fisher fell sick and another member of the group fell victim of infection and was unable to carry his own share of the supplies. When he went missing from the group, Fawcett found him sitting up against a tree, crying and begging to be left to die. Fawcett took out his knife, stabbed him in the rig cage and told him that if he was to die, then it would be on his feet and he forced the man to continue on with the group. Kindness, Fawcett said, is no good in these cases. After a month of following the river, close to starvation, Fawcett ordered Fisher to round up the men's guns in order to prevent mutiny and cannibalism. As close to death as he'd ever been, the group was saved when a deer wandered unsuspectingly into the group's path. At 300 yards, it wasn't the easiest shot to make at the best of conditions, and now, weakened by hunger, it was all the more tricky. Fawcett unslung his rifle from his shoulder, took aim and squeezed the trigger. The group fed well that night, and the next day they found a beehive full of honey. It was sustenance enough, and five days later the group stumbled out of the forest into the settlement of Villa Bella, the River Matt. Fawcett sent a letter to the Royal Geographical Society. 
The river was explored at last, and its course found to differ entirely from the guesswork of 1873. Its source was in springs, not in a lake as had been thought. Our complete set of observations would enable every mile of it to be accurately mapped, thus saving about 1,200 square miles of valuable country for Bolivia. Our hardships and sufferings were fully justified. At least, they were justified for Fawcett, who survived the ordeal. For five of the party, there was no such luck, and they died shortly after returning. In a strange twist of fate, the man that Fawcett had threatened with a knife was one of the only other survivors of the expedition. Over the following years, Colonel Fawcett, as he came to be known, went back to South America repeatedly. In 1910, he and Nina had their third child, a daughter named Joan, whilst his first son, Jack, became the apple of his eye, adept at sports and keen as he was on adventure stories. Whilst back in England, he gave lectures on expeditions in the rainforests and he grew in public stature, gaining notoriety as an adventurer and explorer. A strange mythology built up around him as rumours filtered through the press that he was immune to tropical diseases and stories of his relentless endurance inspired writers of boys' adventure stories filled with wild treks through exotic locales that were serialised and published throughout the country. In time, it seemed as though he himself came to believe his own legend and many thought that he had either a death wish or just believed that no danger could ever touch him. In truth, He was a hard-headed man with a short temper and little sympathy for those who could not keep up with him in the jungle. He once said of those who fell behind him on expeditions, The strain has always been too much for members of my own parties. I have no mercy for incompetence. It was almost prophetic when, in 1911, he went on an expedition with the famed Scottish Arctic explorer and polar scientist James Murray. Accompanied by Henry Manley, a 26-year-old British explorer, and Henry Costin, a former military gym instructor, the group were once again tasked with charting a region of the jungle on the border of Peru and Bolivia. Costin had accompanied Fawcett on expeditions before, concluding that it's hell right, but one kind of likes it. By all accounts, he was Fawcett's kind of guy, and he became one of his most cherished assistants over the following years, accompanying him on several more expeditions. When writing about him, Fawcett had said simply, Never have I wished for better company. The group departed on October 4th, 1911, and were immediately set upon by troubles. At night, vampire bats chewed through their bug nets in order to bite at their skin. Manly and Costin both fell sick, and the pack of animals fell to disease, infection and sickness. Rains fell over the canopy roof and flooded the riverbanks, making travel by boat impossible and so the group were forced to trudge along marshy riverbanks on foot. It wasn't long before Murray, wholly unaccustomed to the conditions of the rainforest, began to succumb to the trials as his injuries and sickness dragged him down. When he eventually passed out from exhaustion and got himself lost from the group, his relief upon rediscovery was short-lived as Fawcett scolded him for slowing the group down. In truth, Murray's wounds were growing rotten and infested with maggots, and Fawcett was anxious that he could not survive long enough to get him out of the jungle in time. Costin too was suffering badly with a spundia, and Manley had malaria. 
when they found a cluster of plantations owned by the Akoka tribe, they stayed in their shelter for several days, using traditional tribal remedies to remove the maggots from their festering wounds and regaining their strength. The tribespeople continued with the group for several days, hunting food and helping them through the forest until they found a camp where they met a trader with a mule that agreed to take Murray out of the forest and back to civilization. When Fawcett, Manley and Costin finally emerged months later, their task complete, they were concerned with Murray's lack of arrival back in La Paz. Fawcett wrote to tell the Royal Geographical Society what had happened, mentioning that when they secured him a ride out of the jungle, he was more or less walking dead. As it happened though, Murray had survived, but he'd just been dropped off by the trader at an outpost where a family had nursed him back to health. When he did return to La Paz, he was furious at Fawcett for his treatment of him in the jungle, and when they returned to England, he threatened to sue him for mistreatment. The Royal Geographical Society managed to step in and smooth the whole thing over, which was fortunate because Fawcett was not doing much smoothing himself. Strictly speaking, he owes his condition to unsanitary habits, insatiability for food, and excessive partiality for strong liquor, all of which are suicidal in such places. Whatever the society said appeared to have some effect in calling the angered Murray, as the matter was never pursued any further. By now, Fawcett had spent considerable time in the jungle, and with his travels, he had started to conjure up some fairly peculiar ideas. Throughout his expeditions, he had found broken pieces of pottery dotted across the landscape, and met with tribes who had music, folklore and oral history as strong as any Western culture. He watched the indigenous people with great care, and he oftentimes marvelled at the ingenuity of their solutions to things like medicine, hunting, and of how they thrived in an environment that killed outsiders with such ease. Before long, like so many before him, he began to imagine the concept of a lost city, abandoned and reclaimed by the forest, once populated by an ancient civilization that were by now lost to time. As the years ticked by, and his expeditions continued, he even came up with a name for this lost city of his imagination. He called it simply Zed. He began carrying around a 10-inch statue of a figure carved from black basalt that had been given to him by his friend Sir Henry Ryder Haggard, an English writer of adventure fiction. Around the figure's chest was a plaque inscribed with several alien characters, and Fawcett was sure that it was both genuine and from an ancient civilization. In efforts to authenticate and discover more about the object, he took it to a psychic who carried out a reading for Fawcett using the extrasensory practice of psychometry. The psychic told him her own opinions of the idol. I see a large, irregularly shaped continent stretching from the north coast of Africa across to South America. Numerous mountains are spread over its surface and here and there a volcano looks as though it's about to erupt. The vegetation is prolific and of a tropical or subtropical nature. On the African side of the continent, the population is sparse. The people are well formed, but a varied nondescript class. Very dark complexioned, though not negroid. Their most striking features are high cheekbones and eyes of piercing brilliance. I should say their morals leave much to be desired and their worship borders on demonology. I see villages and towns revealing signs of fairly advanced civilization, and there are certain ornate buildings which I take to be temples. I seem to be transported across the country to the western side, 
Here the vegetation is dense, the flora most gorgeous, and the inhabitants far superior to the others. The country is hilly, and elaborate temples are partly hewn from the faces of the cliffs. Their projecting facades supported by beautifully carved columns. Processions of what look like priests pass in and out of these temples, and a high priest or leader is wearing a breastplate similar to the one on the figure I am holding. Within the temples is dark, but over the altars is the representation of a large eye. The priests are making invocations to this eye, and the whole ritual seems to be of an occult nature, coupled with a sacrificial system, though, whether human or animal, I cannot see. Fawcett fully believed this testimony, and in time he took the idol to several other psychics, saying that they all more or less agreed on the origin of the statue. His ideas may have seemed quite out there, and, and well, they were. Even before we deal with the psychic's reading of the statue, the accepted narrative at the time was that the tribespeople of the Amazon had always been sparsely populated in erratic pockets that dotted their way along the riverbanks. In typical colonial fashion, they were seen as inferior people, incapable of complex societies, and with Darwin's theory of evolution as evidence, some people even posited that they were less evolved than the supposedly far more civilised Europeans. Fawcett's theories were themselves quite complicated. They were coloured heavily by the dominating European outlook on indigenous races at the time. And whilst Fawcett treated them kindly for the time, and he abhorred the conditions of slavery and genocide that were enforced by the frontiersmen and profiteers that he saw routinely throughout his expeditions, he still often referred to them in terms comparing them to animals and beasts. And in his kindest speech, he spoke only of how the best of them very nearly matched up with ordinary Europeans. Now, however, he began to believe that these same people were potentially capable of creating a wondrous city of spectacular architecture, populated by a complex society. Naturally, the best way to square this notion was to assume that the Indians of the lost civilization in his theories were different in some way, or somehow linked to the Westerner with ancient European heritage. At the very least, the concept of a city was not entirely pie in the sky. In 1911, shortly after his return to England, the American academic and explorer Hiram Bingham III had just discovered the Incan citadel of Machu Picchu. It was a stunning discovery that only fed into Fawcett's imagination as evidence that his lost city was perfectly credible. I had by this time heard in several places vague traditions about remains of the ancient civilizations, and my imagination was stirred by them to such an extent that the urge to investigate was becoming more and more insistent. Just as Machu Picchu's location was unknown throughout the colonial epoch, so may other places yet to be discovered form the basis for many of the legends familiar to the indigene. Over the next few years, Fawcett began piecing together scraps from old colonial legends of the lost city of El Dorado. The Spanish conquistadors had chronicled stories of the city of gold for centuries, beginning way back in the 16th century with a legend of a great city ruled by a king who daily dusted himself with powdered gold and whose primary economy was dominated with fields upon fields of cinnamon. In 1541, Gonzalo Pizarro launched an expedition to find this lost city of gold that consisted of 200 armed soldiers, 2,000 hunting dogs and 4,000 Indians. In the year-long trek through the jungle, 
They found only a few cinnamon trees before most of the group's animals were eaten. Most of the Indians were dead from starvation, disease or torture. And in August 1542, the remaining men were split into two groups with one group, led by Francisco de Orellana, taking a raft and casting themselves off into the river. Months later, they were rejected out into the Atlantic Ocean and they became the first Europeans to travel the length of the Amazon. When Pizarro returned, it was with a party of only 80 men. Several more groups set out to find the lost city and they all ended up failing equally as badly. In the National Library of Brazil, Fawcett dug up an old manuscript, known simply as Manuscript 512, written by an unknown Portuguese author that told of a tall mountain range which, when scaled, overlooked a city in the forest below. When the writers of the manuscript approached the city, they found it was abandoned and adorned with Roman arches and spires. The end of the manuscript is concluded with a series of strange crosses and loops, which Fawcett believed to be hieroglyphs, supposedly copied from the walls of these ruins. By the 20th century, most accepted that El Dorado was nothing but a myth, told as convenient embellishments to elaborate excuses by the conquistadors who failed in their expeditions, or as romantic exaggerations by drunken firesides. Fawcett, however, now found elements of truth in the legends, and he became convinced that there were ruins within the Mato Grosso region that he had been exploring. In a remarkably out-of-the-box theory for the time, he considered that there may have been far greater populations of indigenous peoples in the Amazon prior to the genocides carried out by the Spanish and the rubber companies, the slavers and the frontiersmen. It was a theory that would prove to be almost 75 years ahead of its time. Back in the first half of the 20th century, however, his ideas only raised eyebrows in the Royal Geographical Society and by and large, he played much of his hand close to his chest, quietly writing in diaries and notebooks his plans to front an expedition to find this lost city of Zed. As Fawcett's plans grew more and more elaborate and he began to seek funding for the expedition, 1914 struck, and with it, a heavy derailment. The outbreak of the First World War saw everything cast aside, and Fawcett sailed back to England to volunteer. Despite being 47 years old, he served on the Western Front Commanding Artillery Brigade as a major in the Royal Field Artillery. Two years later, he was promoted to Lieutenant Colonel, receiving the Distinguished Service Order for his role in the fighting. Shortly after that, he received a Founders Medal from the Royal Geographical Society for his services in mapping South America, and he took leave to attend the presentation, only to return to the front just in time to participate in the Battle of the Somme. Writing for a newspaper editorial on his experience of war, he said, Civilization, ye gods, to see what one has seen, the word is an absurdity. It has been an insane explosion of the lowest human emotions. A year later, he was hospitalized after being gassed. It's next to impossible to determine when exactly Fawcett's interests in finding Zed went from a keen interest to an obsession but it seems easy to imagine that the conditions of war turned one's attention towards faraway jungles and he found solace in imagined paradises. Either way, before the war was even over, he was writing to the Royal Geographical Society attempting to secure funding for the expedition that would go and find Zed, and by the time the fighting was over, Fawcett returned to his quest with a renewed vigour. 
Securing funding for the trip proved to be difficult, even after the war had ended. Furthermore, his devoted assistant Manley had died of heart disease and Costin had married and decided to settle down far away from any rainforests. By 1920, many scientific societies were turning their backs on the amateur explorers of old that they once relied so heavily upon and instead were handing their funding over to more and more academics. It's likely that Fawcett would have struggled to lock down financial support for almost any expedition, but to expect to get funding for what most considered to be a fanciful jaunt into a fairy tale was next to impossible. Growing paranoid, when Fawcett was forced to expand upon his reasons for going back to the jungle, he would talk in as vague terms as possible, both to keep his route as secret and to dodge the questioning looks that his answer would ultimately face if he told the truth. Fawcett's renewed interest in spiritualism after the war was equally not helping matters, and despite many esoteric beliefs enjoying a great surge after the war, people still began to mutter about Fawcett's strange behaviour and ideas in the halls of the Royal Geographical Society. His interest in spiritualism was not, in fact, entirely new, and both Percy and his wife had had long ties with psychics, and they'd visited countless mediums, partaking in seances over the years. They were also fairly heavily associated with theosophy and the teachings of the Russian philosopher Madame Blavatsky, who drew on the Eastern religion's concepts of karma and reincarnation and mixed them with ideas of an ancient, long-extinct race of spiritual masters. Fawcett even began writing editorials for several esoteric periodicals. With little money of his own and seeing very little chance of securing funding from the British societies, he moved his family to Jamaica and began petitioning the Brazilian governments for funding directly. Fawcett held a meeting with the Brazilian president and his assistant, who was suspicious of his true motives, suggesting that he may have been using the Lost City story as a cover for a spy operation or seeking to prospect for minerals. Eventually, Fawcett convinced them otherwise and they agreed to fund the expedition on the caveat that it be run jointly by both the British and Brazilian government. Fawcett agreed though ultimately it needn't have mattered either way, as the Brazilian government backed out before the expedition even began, citing financial difficulties. For Fawcett, the politics were irrelevant. He was just happy to be on the trail for Zed. He immediately placed an advert in the newspaper seeking assistance for the expedition, and he employed two men, Lewis Brown, an Australian boxer, and Ernest Holt, an American ornithologist. The expedition would have to be kept small due to financial constraints, but that mattered little to Fawcett, who had always much preferred smaller parties anyway, believing them to pose much less of a threat to the indigenous tribes, and therefore place them on stronger footing for friendship when they crossed paths. The group gathered in Cuiaba, where Fawcett secured two horses and two hunting dogs for the trip. In his letters home to Nina, he also began using a cipher to encrypt his plans, suspicious that the Brazilian government would steal them. The three men marched out of Cuiaba and headed north to almost immediate trouble. The first to break down was Brown. Fawcett had been sure that he'd selected an assistant made for the wilds, but quickly the conditions in the rainforest drove him into a mental breakdown. The group sent him back to Cuiaba and they pressed on a man down. But then, something entirely new happened. Fawcett took an injury to the leg that became so swollen and infected that it was now he who was the one slowing down the group. After so many years of believing himself invincible, he now finally knew what it felt like to be dragged through the tropical forest, only, for him, 
It was the promise of finding Zed doing a drag-in rather than a puffed-up explorer. In a sorry state, the group made camp and Fawcett shot their dying horses. After so long seeking funding and after so much planning in his mind, the expedition was over. He marked their location on the map, christening the area Dead Horse Camp and called an end to the expedition, turning back to Cueva as a failure. Embarrassed and ashamed, Fawcett returned to health and began restocking to return to the jungle, sacking Holt in the progress. Despite the fact that the assistant had stuck with him throughout the gruelling mission and refused to turn back when given a chance. Confused, the scientist wrote in his diary, After close association with Colonel Fawcett for a period covering one year, I find that the lesson most clearly impressed upon my mind is, never again under any circumstances form any connections with any Englishman whatsoever. Fawcett sold half of his military pension in order to restock his supplies, and then, alone, he turned back out into the jungle. Three months later, half starved to death, he was forced to retreat. His search for Zed had been nothing but a failure. The following year, Fawcett began planning once more. Unable to afford assistance, he propositioned his son, Jack, now reaching his twenties. Jack had always been enamoured with his father's stories of adventure and for a long time he had seen him as the ideal figure to follow in his footsteps. When he asked him if he would join him on his next expedition to find Zed, his son jumped at the chance. Fawcett also invited Jack's longtime friend, Rally Rimmel, whom he had known since a young boy and whom Fawcett also considered a capable explorer in the making. The two boys were ideal for the expedition. They were trustworthy and he could confide in them in his plans for finding Zed. And what's more, they both wholeheartedly believed in Fawcett's tales of the lost city. To top it off, they did not require paying, something which was, at present, quite a boon, as the family were by now practically penniless. They had spent several years moving from country to country, before winding up back on English shores in a ramshackle house with no electricity or running water, and they were selling off furniture just to survive. Fawcett wrote to the Royal Geographical Society to request funding, but if it had been difficult before, he now found it impossible following his recent failures. The more the societies turned him away for funding, however, the more he grew to believe that he would find Zed. He visited seances with Nina, where he asked spirit mediums if he would ever find the lost city, and they all ensured him that he would, which bolstered his resolve. As rumours reached the Royal Geographical Society, one member wrote that he believed Fawcett was becoming a trifle unbalanced. By 1924, just as the situation began to feel hopeless, Fawcett met with George Lynch, a British war correspondent with connections to the American press. Lynch heard out Fawcett and he agreed to use his influence to attempt to rustle up private funding in exchange for a share of any profits that the expedition would make. With little other choice, Fawcett agreed, and within days, Lynch had sold the rights to cover the expedition to the North American Newspaper Alliance. Off the back of the press interest, the American Geographic Society pitched in with a grant of $1,000, and this was quickly followed by the Museum of the American Indian, who volunteered a further $1,000. With the American backing assured, Fawcett wrote one final time to the Royal Geographical Society, and this time, he held the cards. 
He insisted that they would not want to be left in the dark, and nobody wished them to be after all that they had done together. And finally, the society agreed to fund his equipment on the expedition. In total, with Lynch's help, the expedition had managed to rustle together $5,000 in funds. It was a paltry sum in reality, but enough to get the expedition underway, provided Fawcett, nor Jack, nor Raleigh were to draw a salary. On December 3rd, the trio met up in New York, ready to board a ship for South America. Nothing on this trip was ever easy, however, and on the eve of their departure, Lynch decided to go out and get drunk and splash a considerable sum of the expedition's money on prostitutes, throwing the entire plan into jeopardy. At the last minute, John D. Rockefeller, the son of the famous American business magnate, donated $4,500 to the expedition off the back of the media hype following the group's departure. In January 1925, Colonel Fawcett, by now aged 58, his 21-year-old son Jack and his friend Raleigh walked over the gangplank to board the SS Vauban in New York, bound for Rio de Janeiro. Naturally, the press, who had paid well for the story, descended on the expedition to milk it for every cent. It is perhaps the most hazardous and certainly the most spectacular venture of the kind undertaken by a reputable scientist with the backing of conservative scientific bodies. It is the culmination of Colonel Force's years of exploration in the South American jungles. He already has gone far toward validation of his contention that there existed in this region a majestic civilization of unknown white race, perhaps 10,000 years old, antedating Egypt, but it held the secret of a mysterious light, possibly derived from some knowledge of basic atomic forces, that these ancient people knew astronomy and mathematics, and that they had perhaps the oldest highly developed indigenous culture in the history of the world. Fawcett had agreed to send out runners throughout the expedition so that the press could follow their every step. At least, this was until they reached the last outpost, before they would venture into the complete unknown. After that, he told them that he expected to be out of touch for up to two years. Their outgoing trip was one of luxury, especially compared to what they were headed towards. They rode in first-class bunks and train cars, stopping off in Batanton to pick up a year's supply of anti-venom serums for a host of various snake bites. In Corumba, the young assistants, Jack and Raleigh, got their first taste of what was to come as they took a boat upriver to Cuiaba, where they stocked up on supplies, bore animals, and waited for the end of the rainy season to arrive in April. As the expedition geared up to leave, the press stories kept rolling, always spectacular headlines touting the inevitable discovery of lost cities, ancient civilizations, and history being rewritten. In an interview, Sir John Scott Kelty, the president of the Royal Geographical Society, was a shade more tempered in its speech, but by this point, the hype was reasonably out of control. There are all sorts of theories amongst anthropologists regarding the distribution of the human race. One or two maintain that the Phoenicians navigated the whole of the Pacific Ocean and that many of them penetrated South America in search of gold. Who knows? There's no doubt that if Colonel Fawcett is able to carry through his expedition, he will have a very interesting story to tell. We shall be glad to have this matter of a lost civilization settled. His modest answers didn't stop the same article talking about discoveries of Atlanteans, gold, silver and even radium. As the dry season arrived, Fawcett, Jack and Raleigh left Cuiaba along with four horses, 
eight donkeys and two dogs. The colonel tearing off with such enthusiasm that it didn't take long for him to separate from the group, who lost him for a day, until, just as panic was beginning to set in, he walked back into the camp the next morning saying he'd gotten lost looking for rock paintings. Almost immediately after they stepped out into true wilderness, things started to go downhill. Rally injured his foot, which became swollen as it was bitten by insects, and Jack, who had felt his friend had been turning soft after he met a girl on the outward trip, began to suspect that he may not be up for the task. As Jack and his father bonded over the tough environment, Rally wrote in his journal, Two is company, three is none. A month later, they reached the Bukhari outpost and the last point of civilization. Things in the region had changed dramatically since Fawcett's last venture, however, and as the bottom had fallen out of the rubber industry, which had moved on to established farms in Asia, the conditions in the outposts had crashed. With Rally suffering from jaundice, the trio stepped out into the jungle, headed towards Dead Horse Camp, leaving their last communication to the outside world. Already we have advanced so far into the unknown that this letter, dispatched by courier, may require months to reach the nearest post or cable office, and thousands of American readers who have followed our initial plans and theories with sympathy and interest will peruse these words months after I have written them. By the time this dispatch is printed, we shall have long since disappeared into the unknown. Weeks and months passed with no communication from the expedition. 1925 reached its end and turned over another year, and still no word had come. But it wasn't until July that anyone dared print their anxieties. Since Fawcett had told the press himself that he may not be able to communicate for up to two years, no one dared to think the worst. The truth was, despite what Fawcett had said, no one expected the silence to last this long. Surely Fawcett's knowledge of the jungle and his skills in diplomacy with the forest tribes would keep them safe. Surely they would return, torn and haggard, stumbling from some tree line somewhere, after a year of living with some unknown lost civilization. Surely it would all just be a matter of time. But the weeks turned into months, and the months years. Eventually, the truth had to be faced. Colonel Percy Fawcett was gone. Eventually, in 1927, after two years had passed, Unspoken fears became printed stories, and theories began to swirl around the disappearance of the expedition. In February of 1927, the press finally gave in and began writing stories that the explorer was officially missing. A relief expedition was established to send out feelers, and returned only after being captured by the Brazilian Revolutionary Army, who captured the group shortly after leaving, believing them to be aligned with the government. In June, the Royal Geographical Society began seeking a competent explorer to embark on a search expedition, but stressed that Fawcett had left into the jungle on his own motion and his own responsibility. On Sunday 24th of July, Nina gave an interview to the press, where she admitted that she believed her husband and son were being held captive by an Indian tribe somewhere, though she did say that she believed him to be alive and most probably being well treated and she still thought that it was too early to send a search party to look for the expedition. The fact of the matter was, though, that it had now been over 30 months since any word had come from Fawcett, and so it continued, until eventually the stories just stopped altogether. As time passed, various search parties left to seek Fawcett, and over the years, 
Theories upon his disappearance have grown more and more elaborate. But never has any one theory truly been able to answer the question of what happened to his expedition. From simple starvation to otherworldly portals, debate has raged for almost a hundred years, with no one ever really gaining any more ground in the argument and no trace having ever been found of their eventual fate. Hundreds of volunteers have marched out into the wilderness, only to end in failure. The luckiest returning with their tails between their legs, battered and bruised, whilst many more have disappeared themselves, never to return. To date, one estimate puts the death toll of those that have gone in search of the three men, including those that have never returned, at over 100. By 1934, the Brazilian government themselves banned search parties seeking for it, as their suspicions ran high that groups were using it as an excuse to prospect the land for mineral deposits, and that the disturbance to the indigenous populations was considered too great, and also, to put it simply, too many were just failing. At the time of their disappearance, the most common, and for many the most viable theories still even today, was that the expedition succumbed to sickness, starvation, predatory animals or injury. In an environment so hostile, one does not need to employ too much of an imagination to see how any number of situations could have arisen that put an end to the expedition. Fawcett was an experienced explorer and he knew the rainforests of the Mato Grosso better than perhaps anyone else on Earth. However, he was also aging. Had he overestimated his own strength or gotten wrapped up in his own legend enough that he allowed the conditions to sneak up and finally get the better of him? Without his father, Jack would have been an inexperienced leader, and whilst Raddy clearly had the enthusiasm of a young explorer, he was incredibly green and had been suffering for some time himself, before their disappearance. It's hard to imagine that either young man would have the necessary skill set to draw upon for their survival should Fawcett have become incapacitated. Fawcett himself said of the boys that they would have to learn to swim by being flung into deep water. The contemporary theory that the group had been captured by a tribe of hostile Indians was equally popular. In time, it was a theory that only grew in likelihood as stories began to filter out from rescue parties and expeditions that followed the group's route and spoke to members of the tribes in outposts that Fawcett was known to stay in. At the time, it was not completely uncommon for certain tribes to take outsiders hostage, demanding a ransom for their safe release, usually paid in equipment. The tribes of the Arumas, Sias, and the Zavantes were all known to have been hostile to Europeans who encroached on their land, and stories of killings were not that unusual. The first organised search expeditions took place in the late 20s, and several came across pieces of old equipment thought to have once belonged to Fortset, now in the hands of tribes, though how they got there was difficult to establish. Most claimed to have been gifted the items, a knife here, a compass there, from Fawcett himself during earlier expeditions, and it's certainly true that Fawcett would have gifted hundreds of pieces of equipment to various tribes during his expeditions, but their presence only fueled the rumours that the group had been killed by hostile tribes. In 1979, a man named Brian Ridout was making a wildlife documentary in Brazil when he heard rumours that Fawcett's gold signet ring, complete with engraving, had shown up in a store in Cuiaba. Ridout went seeking the ring, but by the time he tracked it down, the owner had passed away. Asking his wife, she searched through his possessions and drew out the ring, 
eventually seeing it return to force its last surviving relatives, his granddaughter, back in the UK. Fawcett's relationship with the tribespeople of the Amazon is, without question, complicated. On one hand, he took a pacifistic approach towards meetings, something that plenty of other people chose to skip on. But on the other, he viewed them through the contemporary, racist, colonial lens. He may not have shot them, but he absolutely looked down upon them as savages, and there are theories that suggest that this was ultimately his downfall. Underestimating danger and shrugging off proper etiquette were two of his potential faults, with the bigoted belief of his own divine right as a European colonial the most dangerous third. In 1932, a man named Stefan Ratin turned up in the British Embassy in Sao Paulo, insisting that he speak with the consul urgently in regards to Fawcett. He said that he had been out hunting with friends near the Tapajo River when he had met with the tribe who were holding an elderly white man prisoner. Ratting claimed to have spoken with the man who told him that his name was Percy Fawcett and he asked him to go to the embassy on his behalf and tell them that he was being held against his will. Ratting was able to describe Fawcett perfectly but eventually his story began to fall apart. If the tribe really were holding Fawcett prisoner, why had they let Ratting go? Being able to describe Fawcett wasn't that difficult. He had posed for newspaper cameras plenty enough in the run-up to his final expedition. Probably most damning, however, was the fact that Ratting claimed to have met Fawcett 500 miles away from his last known location. Ratting, however, was adamant. He headed up a small, unpaid expedition back to where he claimed to have met the man, but the group disappeared shortly after they headed into hostile territory and were never seen nor heard from again. But still, there were stranger rumours. One in particular told of a group of travellers who had met Fawcett in a forest where he was now living as a hermit, and in 1937, an American missionary named Martha Monick met a boy in the tribal village of Kuikuro who they claimed was the son of Jack Fawcett and an Indian woman. Six years later, a Brazilian newspaper magnate dispatched a reporter into the forest to ferret out the boy. When he returned with a 17-year-old light-skinned Indian named Delipe, it was to much press excitement until it was realised that the boy was simply an albino. In 1951, a bomb was dropped when Orlando Villas Boa, a Brazilian government official who was sympathetic to the indigenous Indians, came out with the story that the Calapalos tribe had admitted to killing all three men and that he had the bones to prove it. Once more though, as time passed, parts of the story were seemingly not adding up. Stories of the men's killing differed between members of the tribe, and an inspection of the bones by the Royal Anthropological Society in London flagged up a drastic height difference in the remains, as well as extreme dental discrepancies. The upper jaw provides the clearest possible evidence that these remains were not those of Colonel Fawcett whose spare upper denture is fortunately available for comparison. As it turned out, Villas Boa had concocted the story in attempts to protect the tribes by putting an end to the constant stream of search parties looking for Fawcett. He visited the tribe and asked them to dig up the bones of the tallest member they could find, trading them for rifles, and then handed them in to the authorities, claiming them as Fawcett's. 
in 2005 when author David Grant visited the same tribe during his research for his book on Fawcett. He was told that they had met Fawcett's group shortly before its disappearance and that they'd even traded food with them for fish hooks. After that, they had allowed the group to rest in the village before they set off east into hostile territory, despite the tribe's insistence that that direction was too dangerous. Graham was told that they had seen the smoke of Fawcett's campfire moving easterly for five days before nothing on the sixth day. The tribe had attempted to track the group, but they found no further trace. In 1968, one of the more strange theories emerged when cult leader Udo Luckner founded a group called the Magical Nucleus. The group drew on a rich vein of superstition surrounding the Roncador Mountains of the Mato Grosso that told of stories of UFOs, lost cities of elementals and caves inhabited by unknown beings. Luckner, or the High Priest of the Roncador, as he preferred to be known, built a compound on the mountains and preached the end of the world, apparently due, in 1982. An interesting side... Luckner also believed that Fawcett had stumbled upon an otherworldly portal that had sent him to Atlantis in another plane of existence. It seemed plausible enough for some, at least until the world failed to end, and slowly his religion fell apart. Equally as odd is the theory that emerged in 2004, put together in play format by Michelle Williams, a Czech writer and television producer, who believes that Fawcett ventured out into the forest not to find the lost city of Zed at all, but rather to found his own paradise on Earth, which he apparently referred to as the Great Scheme. Fawcett's plan, suggested Williams, was to form a commune consisting of people who rejected the materialism of society and develop a mystic conscious, worshipping a religion centering on his son Jack, who would be handed over to Earth Guardians to be possessed so that they could live on in his body. It might sound just a touch peculiar, but Williams apparently did come to all of his conclusions with the help of Fawcett's own papers that were held by his family in secret and unpublished, which he used to write the play based on the explorer's life and supposed ultimate plans, drawing extensively on Fawcett's links with the occult and his theosophist ideas that he'd picked up from Madame Blavatsky. Criticisms of William's theory would be many, but just to start, we can ask why Nina spent her entire life questioning the death of her husband and son if she knew all along that they were living it up in a commune in the jungle, as well as asking why she did not ever join them. And all of this is before we even get to the fact that the expedition was simply just not equipped to found a commune in the wilderness. Nevertheless, it does remain true that Fawcett did have some fairly out-there beliefs in life, and he had dabbled rather heavily in esoteric philosophy. Throughout her own life, Nina Fawcett had turned repeatedly to spiritualism to seek answers. She had long held the belief that her husband and son would show up alive, and she visited several psychics and took part in seances that assured her the same. In 1953, she died penniless in a boarding house in Brighton, England, shortly before Brian Fawcett published his book, Exploration Fawcett, that pieced together his father's notes on his expedition to find Zed. In the book, Brian Fawcett does come to similar, if not slightly more tempered, conclusions to Williams when he suggests that Zed was possibly a spiritual allegory rather than any true physical space. 
For many, however, the city of Zed is much more likely to have been a true lost city in the far more traditional sense. In recent years, much of what Fawcett believed and was derided for at the time has come to be proven true. It is now accepted that, before European colonialists ever set foot in the Amazon, bringing with them disease, slavery and genocidal tendencies, it was a host to a great number of tribes, with a combined population that sat in the hundreds of thousands, if not millions. New research has challenged the old accepted truths that tribes were always sparse, tiny cultures dotted throughout the landscape here and there, and new satellite imagery has turned up evidence of ancient geoliths, moats, palisades, plazas, earthworks and great roads connecting large settlements, built not from stone but organic materials and now lost to the jungle. There is evidence of agriculture and art, with remains of pottery discovered dating back over 7,500 years. This suggests that it was a land far more advanced than was ever suspected. Fawcett went looking for Zed with the typical bias of an early 20th century European explorer. He sought a city based on Western aesthetics. The pottery shards he found came from a city over the horizon and just out of sight. He never considered that remnants of the true Zed were under his very feet the whole time. And just as it had been consumed by the relentless forest, so too was his eventual fate, reclaimed by nature and lost forever. So that was Percy Fawcett and the Lost City of Zed. I hope you enjoyed it. It's a bonkers story um, and it's a really quite complex story in a lot of ways. Um, There are a few things that I mainly want to talk about. So we'll get to them after these short advert breaks. Thanks for listening to Dark Histories. This podcast is entirely independent and funded by myself and listener support. So in order to do that, I need to run a few ads. Our long-time advertising partner is Audible, and the reason I've stuck with them for so long is that they offer a service that I actually use and enjoy myself. And I do think it actually offers value to people like myself who enjoy podcasts. If you're unaware of what Audible is, it's an audiobook subscription service which charges a monthly fee in return for one credit, which you're free to spend on any audiobook you like. The catalogue is huge, multilingual and covers everything from fiction to series of lectures. They have an iOS, Android and web app and if you use more than one they all sync up together so that you can listen on any of your devices without having to skip about. If you ever feel like you want to take a break from the subscription you can do so and you get to keep all your previously bought books and when you get into a drought you can just fire it up again and start gaining credits seamlessly. Some of my favourite books on there to date are The Complete Sherlock Holmes, which is read by Stephen Fry. And they've also got the original Exorcist book and just a huge history back catalogue. And I've really enjoyed all of those, basically. So if this sounds like something you might be interested in, head over to audible.com forward slash dark histories. And that's dark histories, all one word. And you can start a free trial that offers a monthly subscription with one free credit so that you can instantly pick an audiobook of your choice. If at the end of the trial you feel like it's not really for you, you can just cancel it and it's cost you nothing and you get to keep your free book. So once again, 
That's audible.com forward slash dark histories, or you can find the link in the show notes. So earlier I mentioned listener support, and there are a ton of ways that you can get involved and support Dark Histories. The main way is to become a Patreon patron. If you listen to a lot of podcasts, I'm sure you're familiar by now. But for those not so much, Patreon is a way to make a monthly pledge in return for some small perks. On the Dark Histories Patreon, I set my pledges as low as I can really, with options for $1, $3 and $5 per month. And for that, you gain things like early access episodes without these horrible ads, PDF notes and resources that I make and find during my research for each episode. There's also access to the live stream archives and more. So if you enjoy the show and you think it's worth it to you, hop over to darkhistories.com and you can find all the ways that you can support, including our Patreon, or just check out the links in the show notes. If none of that appeals, then sharing it around with all your friends and family is equally as helpful and just as much appreciated. So if you're here, then thanks so much for not skipping the ads with that 30 second skip button and giving my hard sell a listen. I'll let you get back to the episode. Cheers. Welcome back. A, a really good, great, fun story to research, but quite a complicated story. Before I start, I'm going to recommend a couple of books. Um, and, but I do recommend that you read both rather than just the one. So they're, they're the two sort of main books that I read for this to get like the background for the story and, and to understand it a bit better was David Gran, um, The Lost City of Zed, A Tale of Deadly Obsession in the Amazon, which is a, a modern book and, it, and it's a, just a great book. I, and I'm not talking about from any sort of like research perspective or any of that, but it's just a romp of a story. It's a really, really great, fun book to read. I think I read the entire book in the space of a day. It was just, you know, a proper like page turner, if you like. But I would really recommend reading that with a book written by Brian Fawcett. Um, I think it's usually credited to Percy Fawcett called Lost Trails, Lost Cities. And or it's sometimes it's called Expedition Fawcett as well. It's basically it was it was originally published in 1953 and it was written by his son, Brian Fawcett, but it used Percy Fawcett's notes and diaries. And I believe that that gives a much more true depiction of Percy Fawcett than David Grant's book, which, it, like I say, is great. And I do think it gives quite a measured, fair idea of Percy Fawcett. But you get a real measure of the man by reading the other book that uses his actual notes, um, because he's a really complicated guy. And, and I think David Grant sort of skims over that a little bit, which I can completely understand, because by going into it would have trashed like the book really um it, you know it would have made it a nightmare to read and, and and also just not as much fun to read i guess and and i guess you know sometimes that's the point i suppose I, I don't know it's not how i would approach it but i'm not a writer of books and you know david ground's a bestseller so you know i'm sure his approach was the right one but when you read both books i think you'll find that, you, that also you find him quite a complicated character. You do sort of have to remember that they're they're written like that. Both of them are written through written through a distorted lens. Um, 
so with David Grant's book, it's it's like I say, it's sort of written through the idea of like a, a great page turning blockbuster. And I think that's fine, but you have to recognize that really going in. And then the other book, you sort of have to remember that that's written by his son, who was clearly going to color the tale. Um, there are things that he concealed on intentionally. And there are, you know, probably elements to his father's character that he would have concealed as well. Um, so, you, you know, they're, they're both great books. They're both really brilliant. Some of the best books that I've read, at least for this season of Dark Histories. And, and, I, and I really recommend, I say, especially the David Graham book. And then I, I feel like after that, read the Percy Fawcett book um, to get a true picture. And, and I think that, that I really do recommend reading them because they're great fun. But yeah, I found like upon finishing both of those books and then reading more about Percy Fawcett that I, I came with a, away with a really complicated picture. The, the point, it, there is a point to this anyway, like it does sort of play into where, why I think he disappeared and, and, and all the rest of it. But in David Grant's book, he talks very much as if Percy Fawcett was this like perfect kind of pacifist who... Um, you know, was like friends with the tribes and all the rest of it. And I, I don't think that's necessarily that true. When you read his own notes, you see that he was a proper colonial racist. Um, he, he, he very much looked down upon the tribes. And this is why I say he's complicated because on, on one hand, he's talking about these tribal people as if they're like basically animals. And it's quite jarring to read. You know, you, you, you have to read it understanding that it was written in 1920 to, to to really understand you know why he's saying these things but on the other hand he's he's really damning the the genocide that was going on and, and the slavery and 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 he talks with real passion about his distaste for that and 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 to get to the point it's what i think you know makes it difficult about his disappearance because i think that heavily plays into his disappearance so so talk about his disappearance you know, really, I mean, I think you can think at 58 years old and, and probably the only one on the mission with any experience and any expertise, it's not hard to believe that it was sickness or, or injury, um, that, that, that basically, you know, starvation, any of these things could easily have ended up leading to their, to their death. Um, and then there's like the secondary theory that sort of goes alongside that in many ways is that they were picked up by a hostile tribe. And this is where the complicated attitudes of Fawcett really come into it. Because in David Grant's book, he, he very much paints Fawcett as this kind of like um, benevolent guy to the, to the tribes who was friends with everyone who spoke loads of languages. But in truth, that wasn't necessarily the case. Um, he, like I say, he, he, he did... He was pacifist to a degree. He didn't he didn't go around shooting them and genociding them. But he hit them and he stabbed them with knives and he yelled at them and he certainly treated them like lesser people, like we say. And he certainly underestimated them. You know, at one point he talks about how they can't shoot, you know, because they get too excited at the sight of a foreigner and then they, they lose all ability to shoot. So he was never scared to be shot at. And you think... An arrow is going to hit him eventually if he, if that's all he's going on. Um, but it's that typical holier-than-thou, greater-than-thou kind of European colonial attitude where he saw them as lesser than him. You know, he saw the savages as less than him. And, you know, th there are also a lot of examples where he, he didn't really, like, 
follow the correct etiquette so he wouldn't give them gifts and things like that which was like a mutual reciprocated thing you know if you were a traveler in the in the rainforest you gave the tribes gift and they they sort of gave you their hospitality and they often gave you gifts back but if you didn't give them gifts things were slightly different you know because you were after all encroaching on their land you know you were there because they allowed you to be there so if he was kind of ignoring this kind of like standard et- etiquette that was accepted, again, you can see he's like really like the provocations. So I I believe anyway, my point is, I believe that's probably what happened. He was told, like warned by several tribes um, before he left that he was heading in a direction towards hostile tribes, like tribes who were just utterly hostile to Europeans. And, you know, outsiders and he went anyway and he went with not enough of a party to have any substantial gifts on him and he went probably poorly equipped so when you look at it like that i think probably we know his fate so that's that's my that's what i believe anyway but all of that aside and, and kind of like you know moving past that what a great story and it gets absolutely bonkers when he gets into like the, the lost city of zed and you start going down these rabbit holes of his beliefs and they're just crazy he's got you know all these esoteric beliefs from like the early 20th century of like spiritualism and and theosophism and and you know he was really involved in Matt this madame blavatsky and you know he went to seances and he and you you read the theory by misha williams i mean to say it's out there is an understatement but when you start looking at his actual views, and I do think that Fawcett probably did hold a lot of those opinions and did have a lot of those really out there views, whether or not I think he went off into the forest and made a commune revolving around a religion that was centred on his son, I don't know if I can go that far. But I do think he probably did hold those views. Again, it's another thing that I probably recommend you read if you really find this story interesting. And, and, and it, you know, why not is Misha Williams's play because it's available online and you can read it. And it tells his theory basically on what he thinks happened because it's a telling of Percy Fawcett's life as he believes it to have happened. So that's basically his theory. The play is his theory. Um, and it's, yeah, it's pretty out there. So, yeah, I definitely recommend that. Otherwise, a great story and full of loads of rabbit holes and some like really interesting mystery going on there. And, you know, the idea that maybe Zed really did exist, probably in a very different way to how he believed it. That's that. If you'd like to get in touch with me, you can contact me. Contact at darkhistories.com is the email. Um, you can find all the links to, to the social media, uh, Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, all that. That'll be in the show notes. Um, It's also all on the website, which is darkhistories.com. If you would like to support, you can also find links to that at darkhistories.com. Obviously, that's all completely voluntary. And also, uh, T-shirts and stuff like that is on... um, You'll find, again, links to all of that, darkhistories.com. Probably best go there. Thanks very much for listening. I'll be back in a couple of weeks. So until then, thanks for listening and take care. Sleep tight.